you see something that others don't, uh, that is self-fulfilling. It's self-satisfying. And things that are self-fulfilling and self-satisfying, narratives like that are especially effective when people are shut out from a lot of society, from COVID-19, from vaccine skepticism. People are out of jobs, families, especially before vaccinations, because uh, the government told you one day to stay home and not see your family. And they had good reasons to, but at the same time, it's hard not to take it personally when something upends your whole life. And rather than seeing evidence of COVID-19 making it so, people don't really know a lot of people that have COVID-19. All they see is evidence of people telling them that COVID-19 exists. Hi guys, welcome back to Cozy Convos. My name is Heather, and today we're going to be exploring extremism and radicalization. Now, this is obviously a very difficult thing to speak about, but I first made contact with Dan a year ago through Cozy when he uploaded a article about anti-mask movements and how this is a breeding ground for conspiracies and radicalization. And aside from maybe just seeming ridiculous and harmless and, hey, look, it's just a flat earth, right? Actually, extremism and radicalization can lead to some very disastrous consequences. You get incels that are killing people. You get people who are very lonely and confused, creating genuine disruptions towards daily life to people who've got really nothing to do with it. And how this monopolization of isolation can actually feed upon people's misery more and more and get them affiliated with the wrong people. It's a very interesting and a very difficult conversation to have. Dan was actually understandably very nervous throughout the conversation, as was I. At times we laugh and we try to sort of, you know, break the tension. And that's because there is a lot of tension when talking about these things. You want to make sure you get your terminology right. You want to make sure that you're not disparaging a group of people just because you disagree with them. It's very important to get those things across. But I feel like the conversation went well. I tried to ask as many questions as I could about this subject. It's something that I'm very interested in too. Um, and the kind of themes that you see in different kinds of radicalization and extremism procedures, whether it's ISIS or anti-mask or flat earthers, it's a very wide-ranging field that really demands exploring. So Dan obviously does this for a living, and the first question I had for him was, how does somebody get involved in something like this, especially as a career? Uh, I spent a summer just uh, obsessively watching uh, message boards and forums, seeing uh, what was going on and noticing the gradual change from uh, a really unhealthy nihilistic environment into an actually tangible extremist movement. And that sort of just stuck with me all throughout uh, as Gamergate happened and the, uh, the rise of the alt-right uh, continually went along. Uh, I sort of just played a background role as just a, an observer for a really long time uh, with a lot to say, but not the confidence to say anything about the subjects. Uh, and then during COVID, I started blogging uh, in particular about conspiracy movements in Canada. Uh, I would uh, go into private groups uh, that I thought were not getting a lot of attention. Uh, I would talk about what we were talking about, uh, what they were talking about in those groups, and started doing my own little amateur exposés for a while uh, before I started picking up more steam and more readers realizing, uh, yeah, there is an audience for breaking down exactly what's going on here uh, to people that haven't been extremely online for the past decade. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely important work to sort of start addressing and exposing kind of like how online hate works, which we hopefully can go through in the podcast. But in the beginning with the whole red pill stuff, I definitely remember being like 13, 14, kind of scrolling the internet, just getting into some weird spaces. And that still happens to me as well. Like I still got the similar kind of morbid curiosity you have. But um, I guess like, how, how did you stumble upon it? I guess like, was it was it kind of easy for you to do that, for, to, to find something like that? Was it or do you find it was quite difficult? Because I imagine a lot of people who aren't involved in any of this, who have no idea when they read your articles and they're surprised by this stuff, how this stuff works, I'm sure many of them probably wouldn't imagine a way into finding out how, to, you know, what even red pill stuff is. So like, how easy was it for you to maybe find that stuff? Pretty easy, actually. Uh, I've always been, personally, the, I think there's two factors going on there. One is like, I'm personally a little more inclined towards uh, finding out the um, things that are not necessarily uh, going to ruin my day visually, but interesting opinions on, on uh, things that dissent, like I, I'm, like I used to find cryptids fascinating. Um, so part of that's my morbid curiosity. I think a much larger part of that is people really underestimate uh, exactly how major even a fringe movement can be and how accessible it can be to the rest of the world. Uh, even through like ironic attacking, uh, 
by the time I was looking at the Red Pill movement and fascinated by it, there were already certainly subreddits dedicated just to uh, exposing comments on that subreddit just so they could be dissected by people uh, who were attacking it, mocking it, uh, or just fascinated by it. Uh, some people would just repost them to tear it apart. It was kind of just like some people didn't take it seriously. They would repost it as memes. Yeah. Uh, like even though it wasn't something you would see on the daytime news, it wasn't necessarily something super niche uh, that was unique to people like you and I uh, specifically instead of more, well, just anyone that spends uh, too much time on the internet uh, that's healthy and goes in those places where other like-minded people are, uh, you're going to find some access to this sort of thing. Some people are going to understand it. Some people aren't. Uh, but if it's big and it grows, uh, someone will pay attention to it. Yeah. And um, having knowledge over this for about a few years and staying silent about it, do you remember what was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of making you go, okay, now I want to actually write about that? Because that's, um, that's a big move, isn't it? Because it takes a lot. It takes your time. Uh, it takes some skill, some self-belief that, you know, you, you got to say something, but then also a strong, like, fire that motivates you to want to say something about it. And was there, what was the motivation behind maybe saying or writing about it, finally? Uh, honestly, generational gap, uh, as emphasized by talking politics with my parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I used to, I, I made a blog with the intention of, like, I wanted to practice writing. Uh, I was uh, in between jobs when COVID hit because I was, I was exiting grad school. Uh, in two time we're, we're very uh very uh, dangerous job market dangerous is is a strong word uh just not the a kind of a bleak job market uh, after grad school so it was a time to practice skills and i was like mm -hmm. well i want to be able to to break down uh certain things that uh, i have arguments in real life with uh online from the, the subject of someone who's like been unfortunate before trying to break this stuff down to someone who uh, definitely would not know what 4chan is or might not know what Reddit is or might not know what Tumblr is, uh, but now is in the situation where they kind of might need to understand some things about that um, in the terms of like modern politics. Like I had, uh, I think like even my parents were hearing about like Richard Spencer, uh, white nationalist and, and American neo-Nazi uh, endorsing Biden uh, after endorsing Bernie Sanders uh, in the 2020 election. And that was something that like a lot of people just didn't, really seemed to grasp because they didn't know who Richard Spencer was uh, or the fact that someone could just troll uh, their way into creating political discourse. <laughs> I guess when you started writing articles about this, it wasn't about red pill stuff. It was about um, anti-mask rallies, right? So why, why was it like, why was this your first thing that you sort of published? Why was it not any of the other sort of previous forms of extremism that you encountered? Because people were really sympathetic uh, to varying degrees and not understanding towards Canada's COVID conspiracy movement, which at that time was just called the anti-mask movement. Uh, yeah. Just a series of uh, complaints about masks. Because on the surface, you could see uh, in groups with very uh, effective messaging, um, tackling on something tangible like, well, no one likes wearing a mask, uh, into really quite severe political messages. Uh, was something that was not uh, really examined much on the surface of people that looked at uh, anti-mask groups. There'd be, you know, the, the occasional puff piece uh, saying uh, about uh, these leaders and conspiracy movements that would kind of address like, yeah, our movement against wearing masks and we just think uh, COVID's overblown. They wouldn't really delve into why and you ask them why. Uh, if, if, if they had been asked why, you would get into the meat of it, which is like, well, they don't think COVID is actually real. Like this is all one big conspiracy theory to them. Uh, or likewise, some of them would believe that COVID was real, uh, but there was something sinister or that COVID was real, but you could only catch it if you wore a mask. And that was part of the plan all along that the globalists had set out for you. So it was a general just kind of need for me to be, uh, I, I felt uh, it was something that was underexamined uh, and definitely misunderstood uh, broadly. When it comes to uh, parallels between different extremist movement, I'm certainly by no means uh, an expert in extremist movements that aren't in the west uh, my focus is, is strictly canada mm. uh that being said i'm also only an english speaker so uh, even during my day i only disseminate uh, only analyze uh english propaganda uh in in canadian spaces so there's a lot that that wouldn't go that would go past me so uh any canadian content even if it's uh, if it's muslim extremism it's, it's if it's in arabic uh it's not going to be something that uh, i'm equipped to analyze it's not going to be something that i'm equipped to uh talk about or deal with really 
Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect, <laughs> I wouldn't expect to ask you those questions either. But I suppose this is kind of, I guess, the thing that I'm thinking is that I definitely see a lot of, um, I hear a lot about young men getting radicalized quite a lot, and um, that being quite a common theme, whether it is with red pills, whether it's incels, um, even like you know young like white men joining ISIS, like that's you know, or, or you know into neo-Nazi movements. It always you know always tend to be sort of. Uh, you know, young guys. But I suppose when I read that article about um, anti-masks and anti-mask rallies literally sort of boiling into really strange beliefs, I found that it was, it didn't, it wasn't young men for a change. It was sort of, yeah, a, a mixture of um, demographics. And and do you, do you think you have any sort of reason, think of any kind of yeah. reason why that is? I think, uh, so I, I think the, the obvious parallel to draw between, even before the pandemic, between ex Western extremists and uh, what ISIS uh, really took hold of to make them kind of stand out uh, in a very dense world of uh, jihadi terror groups uh, is monopolizing isolation, like using that as a tool. Uh, young men being lonely, um, evidently a real problem. Uh, we can talk about day to day and how every solution proposed by uh, every sort of radical group uh, is just a tool uh, that uses that. But the problem is real. Isolation, loneliness is real. Those frustrations, those vulnerabilities that groups like ISIS pick on uh, were real. Evidently, the fact that they all pick the same demographic shows that there's something that's an underlying problem there, that the same type of people get drawn to each one. Uh, I also think uh, ISIS in particular, you mentioned, like I said, I'm not an expert, but uh, it is certainly worth noting that ISIS propaganda-wise in terms of like getting uh, materials to the West was exceptionally good. Like I've read through their English print magazines. Uh, it's terrifying. Uh, it's really easy to see how uh, groups like neo-Nazis occasionally would dissect particularly uh, propaganda from ISIS. Mm. But I, what I think the pandemic was, was a great equalizer with like different demographics is uh, People who were extremely online before, people who were isolated before and the most extremely online were particularly a young demographic and particularly men. And the pandemic equalized a lot of that because they put a lot of people out of a job that were not in that demographic. And when people don't have work to do, they can't see their relatives. They're stuck at home. Mm. Uh, they don't really necessarily understand the reasons why. Where else would they go except for, for Facebook uh, yeah. to find the answers to everything? Uh, and finding like-minded individuals that had these frustrations that were very legitimate uh, about their loneliness and isolation and how they didn't have things to do during COVID brought people together in like-minded groups that prone them for conspiracy theories and radicalization. Yeah, that's that, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think there would be any sort of link, but yeah, it makes sense when you say monopolizing isolation. That's a really, really interesting term for it. But isolation, like, you know, everybody feels a bit lonely. You know, you might, you might cry, you know, you might feel um, very parts of emotion, but what, what else sort of goes into that? Is it just isolate isolation in itself or is it mixed with other kinds of emotions that would lead someone into believing some of this stuff? There's a lot of really legitimate concerns that the uh, COVID conspiracy movement does address uh, inconsistencies in uh, mandates, uh, whether they be for vaccines or lockdowns uh, in my province, Ontario, uh, People on any side of the political spectrum had questions uh, about why certain things were closed, why certain things weren't closed, why certain things were allowed only quarter capacity, why certain things were allowed more capacity. And also, like many governments everywhere, we failed small businesses and we failed the working class when it came to the pandemic. Uh, so people uh, had reasons to be angry at the government. Uh, and you need scapegoats uh, when something is complicated and it's not easy to point a finger at it. Uh, government failure is inevitable when it comes to certain things. Uh, no one could have stepped up to the plate when it came to COVID because no one was fully prepared. Uh, but that being said, it's fair for people to want better from their elected officials. It's fair for people to ask for more. Uh, the problem is the first people that came to answer the question, well, what could they have done differently, uh, were the people that were most primed to have the answers because they had been uh, dwelling on creating conspiracy movements and pushing their ideal and, and methods to push their ideas forward. Uh, as soon as the pandemic hit and the slightest whispers of lockdown even started. Yeah, that's interesting. I think what interests me about you saying that is that you haven't really blamed the people who have been sort of subject towards radicalization. You're blaming sort of the inconsistencies in government policy, um, government's responsibility in, in failing small businesses. Um, and so I, I think there, 
when I sort of have been part of many discussions about why does radicalization happen more generally, a big one people mention is sort of they're stupid or there's a lack of education. Do you think that goes into it? Maybe a lack of education or lack of resources? Or do you feel that, you know, someone who's very, um, you know, quite studious or intelligent or passionate could still be misled into these things? I do think, uh, mixed answer. I think education is important. Access to resources are important. Uh, generally, like, ways of combating narratives uh, that are misinformed or intentionally disinformed uh, are crucial, but I think they only work uh, before those feelings are answered by the disinformation. Uh, those things need to be stepped in early because no amount of fact-checking can get someone uh, out of a mindset where they've been in an echo chamber for two years straight uh, and have been fed answers that suit their narratives for that long, uh, and those answers at the same time have pushed away uh, any sort of information that might contradict it. It's pretty hard to get someone out of that rabbit hole uh, after they've already sunk in. So those resources need to be done, uh, but they need to be done fast or proactively. Reality is like it can actually be uh, easier feeling-wise uh, to find a narrative that suits exactly what you believe because you don't have to confront uh, change when you're uh, if you're not confronted with differing information. That being said, I don't think people are necessarily happier when they're in echo chambers because the best way to keep people in echo chambers is to show them information that appeals to their emotions of anger. Things that get you upset uh, make you the most involved. That's why people protest against things they're upset about and no one holds, you know, uh, there's no reason to actively fight against anything if you don't believe there's anything to be fought against. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it. I think the reason I asked that question is because I guess my belief is that, you know, when, when I see some, uh, I guess when I see some examples of, uh, you know, people who've been quite radicalized, I know that they've been, you know, they're very extreme on one side of the opinion and they've made this their life cause, but I never really see them as quite stupid. You know, I always see them as quite like um, misguided because they actually, some of them take a great deal of effort to research these things. And, you know, they know a lot about this. And even if it's not the, um, you know, even if it's not, even if it could be, you know, with a bit more, they could take some opinions with a bit more of a pinch of salt. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, not trying to find out what's right. There are brilliant people that believe uh, in, in factually incorrect things. There are brilliant flat earthers. And it's not that they... Uh, lack the critical thinking to reach the, the wrong conclusions that they did. It's that uh, they don't have the means to do something like geographically measure, uh, do measurements in a way that could possibly uh, prove the globe. Like they're not, if they're not mathematicians, if they're not a geogra a geographically inclined, uh, if so, like if they've never flown in airplanes, they can still be incredibly intelligent and be given false information. But if that false information is well presented uh, and then thrown in with a bunch of other false information that makes these same wrong assumptions and it continues to repeat those wrong assumptions until they are taken as fact. It can be really convincing, even to really smart people. Yeah. Um, and I think to answer the first, well, it's not really answering, but I guess asking about the first part of your question, yeah. you said um, it was something to do with, it's never too early to give those resources, but do you think it could be too late? To like, I think it can be. Yeah. Uh, so, the best uh, allocation and the best way to face that is to look not at threats that have already kind of peaked and are going down, uh, but actually threats that are still very active. Uh, we have like a lot of people like in nonprofits, academia, uh, etc. QAnon is still uh, like a massive phenomenon, uh, but I think there's a need to address like QAnon is not the be all end all and addressing QAnon as like this thing that could still draw people in uh, and is still drawing people in uh, resource-wise is not necessarily the best way to address something like that. Uh, the reality is it's kind of run its course in certain ways of uh, building up what it could be. And now it's the adjacent narratives that QAnon has spawned off and uh, been paired off with. Some of those are still growing and some of those are still becoming more extreme. Uh, and it's best to address those. In Canada, we have uh, like a QAnon influencer uh, named Ramona Dudulo, uh, who calls herself the Queen of Canada. And at times she says the real uh, Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is incarcerated or uh, otherwise uh, predisposed. She uh, makes uh, messages to her followers implying that eventually they should kill uh, people who give uh, vaccines and members of the government. Really, really violent stuff. That all started as a QAnon movement, but it's moved well past that now. Uh, and the threats need to be addressed of, well, what's still getting people in? What is, uh, what's still getting people in and what is actually really dangerous and ruining people's lives 
uh, after the fact, because if our information is outdated, uh, you know, what are we even doing here? So that's a really tough thing because data, uh, people like uh, using data that is thorough and critically examining. It takes years to do uh, some data things that are, are critical, but when you're focusing on one particular niche, one particular type of disinformation, a lot of the time, by the time you get the cold hard statistics for that, it is already later than the problem should have been addressed. See, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess when you're with your uh, research, do you actually work with any radicalized like people or is it just sort of trying to make resources and researching? No, I, I do not. Uh, my particular project right now uh, at the uh, Newberger Holocaust Education Center online hate research and education project in Toronto is uh, strictly resource based and, uh, and, and data. Uh, so it's data that's up to date. It's a living uh, database. We're not doing anything that closed off at a certain time. It's a certain date until now. Um, but uh, we do not work individually with people. We work specifically with messaging and propaganda, right. essentially. And yeah, you mentioned earlier that you work with schools and I imagine you sort of supply schools with these resources so they can understand hate symbols. We're hoping to, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've been giving presentations uh, and we're, we're developing workshops and we're developing uh, website resources. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll have more to, to show for that soon. Uh, no promises dates wise, but hey, keep an eye out. <laughs> I mean, what goes into that? What goes into this sort of like creation or adoption of a hate symbol? Like wh where does it start off? Because I imagine these things start off not as hate symbols. And then as time goes on, they develop these meanings. How does that, do you, do you, do you know how that happens a lot of the time? Like how, who changes it? Cause I, I can't imagine like finding like the swastika in like, for example, like Hindu culture. And then firstly finding that as someone who's like, you know, far right. And then changing that to me, my thing. It's just strange. Uh, sometimes it's actually a concentrated effort. Sometimes it's very far removed and ironic and uh, done in, in it's, it can be a very contextual exercise trying to determine uh, how something became what it is. And it's kind of a mix and we address uh, origins like when we're, we're uh, writing entries for a website right now uh, about hate symbol specifically Canada is adopting, uh, Canada is, is currently in the house, uh, is, we're currently going through sessions uh, to vote on uh, a law that would ban certain specific hate symbols, like the Confederate flag uh, and the, specifically the uh, Nazi Germany iteration of the swastika. So uh, it's a complicated question of where to draw the line because things do get reappropriated all the time, swastika being obviously the best example. Mm. Uh, when it comes to the most clean-cut uh, examples of things, there are actually a lot of symbols uh, used in extreme spaces that were created by those extreme spaces. Likewise, there's also a lot of co-op ones uh, that we have evidence of people co-oping them. And occasionally we get to see that in real time. The best example uh, that was known is uh, the OK hand symbol, uh, which uh, in a very abstract way, if you pick the OK hand symbol and you hold up three fingers on the side, uh, which I probably shouldn't do on camera. Uh, Let's go to demonstrate. Yeah, the, allegedly the three fingers uh, make a W and uh, pinching uh, your uh, index finger to your thumb makes a p uh so the wp for white power uh, but in reality the meaning like that actually being a part of the symbol is actually pretty secondary to what it is uh because there's threads on 4chan where people talk about well uh people like doing the okay hand symbol it's a popular game uh, it was when i was in high school to do uh to pinch your index finger and your thumb below your waist and if you could trick someone into seeing it like you tell them oh your shoes are untied and if you trick them into saying it then you get to like flick them in the forehead or something <laughs> depending on the school sometimes you get punched in the shoulder you know it depends yeah. on the friend group uh, like that's a, a pretty popular thing and uh, some celebrities were doing it. I think brie larson did use a symbol at a, at a red carpet event and uh, people uh, on 4chan were like well hey why don't we make this a hate symbol so we can get a lot of mass confusion and get people that are prominent and journalists uh, to condemn uh, or treat people who are innocuously making the okay hand symbol as a hate symbol so it started purely as something that was supposed to be ironic but then as it became more and more recognized as something that uh, people were having these discussions of whether it is or isn't a hate symbol, hate groups just started using it unironically. It's a clear example of what some people in the field call irony poisoning, which is kind of a complicated word to describe a series of events where someone uses something ironically or absorbs uh, something ironically, often an internet meme, enough to the point where they're desensitized to the irony, uh, and then it just mm -hmm. kind of becomes part of their lexicon. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a good answer. Yeah. Cause I was going to say that they attach to the like ambiguity of it almost that, you know, most people wouldn't 
sort of know what that means, but then people in on it, they they kind of know. But then there's a there's a very real element of irony to it as well, which I never expected. Yeah, I've seen it too. With a there's a current symbol. I can't say it because I'm not sure if we're going to include it. And uh, promoting it as a hate symbol would be uh, giving it perhaps amplification because uh, right. it, it, it's still kind of in the bag. But there's something you could type on your keyboard that's pretty innocuous. That I've seen. one particular um, very small niche hate group is trying to popularize uh, as a hate symbol in the exact same vein with no originality uh, as symbols done like the okay hand signal just solely as something like hey if we can get the anti-defamation league to call this a hate symbol uh we'll get to pat ourselves on the back for getting something there and then it'll be one less uh character on the keyboard that people can't use anymore uh, we just we took one thing away from the normies and we've made one more thing ours we've absorbed one more bit of culture and we can call it a win right so is that is that the way 4chan works then like is it i mean is it <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. i mean what what did they get out of it was going to be my next question is it, and is it just to sort of piss people off and troll people well it's actually quite practical uh, part of it is to piss people off and troll people uh, you were supposed to uh if you're in, in one of these movements the goal with uh, to the outside world is to uh make them either feel afraid or not take you seriously and no matter what make fun of them forever how they react so they're supposed to be at best, uh, the most that uh, these extreme groups usually consider a win is for someone to be uh, afraid and take them as a dangerous threat and then to mock them as taking them as a dangerous threat. Thereby, when people look at them taking them as a dangerous threat, they take them less seriously. Uh, sometimes in youth movements, they call like this kind of phenomenon hiding your power level, where you pretend everything is way too ironic. Uh, especially youth, like parents, teachers, they will try to, quote, hide their power level from teachers uh, until the point that... Uh, you know, they're so uh, engrossed in the irony that the, that is really all they have. Uh, it just seems so over the top and absurd that it's not taken seriously. Yeah, I see. And I can see the effectiveness of that as a hate symbol. And what yeah. you mentioned was, uh, sorry, the amplification of like hate symbols and like making sure you don't pass that. Um, like there's a risk of maybe with this niche one, this niche symbol you're referring to, to not pass that as a hate symbol and the dangers that are involved in that. What dangers are there? I mean, if your like mission is to basically shed light on all and all possible ways that these things could happen for these schools to know, what's the risks of passing through something that isn't widely well known yet in the worlds of hate? It's an excellent question. Uh, one thing that's uh, a, certainly a risk is having people take, because uh, well, we try to keep language simple and accessible, especially if we're trying to break down a lot of things and things like a research guide, a resource guide. We want to have hundreds of symbols listed, especially meme-based ones that might not be traditionally understood as as symbols uh, in extreme uh, in extremism and symbols of hate. So we don't want to represent something that is pretty casually used for another purpose uh, and tell people that sometimes it's a hate symbol and then have them see it everywhere in ways that aren't hate symbols where they interpret it as such. Uh, that's happened before with uh, quite a few different symbols where there's been, you know, general, um, actually the, uh, in the United States a few years ago, the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, had a stage, for example, that was shaped uh, incidentally like uh, a specific Northern room called the Odal or the Othala, which is an incredibly popular symbol in white power groups. Uh, it's on neo-Nazi groups' flags. It's been used. It's a popular uh, neo-Nazi skinhead tattoo. Um, but there's no evidence that the flag shape wasn't coincidental, and it's a pretty uh, organic shape to make if you want to create something like an innovative stage design. So we don't want people seeing hate symbols in places where we're not 100% sure that's hateful. Uh, they're more just creating a discourse around uh, something that doesn't necessarily need to be dissected uh, in such detail because we don't know for sure uh, if it's problematic, and when all is said and done, the discourse kind of just blurred the lines and uh, muddied the waters. Yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely true, and that's definitely important to make sure you don't get that, yeah, the, the muddied waters for sure. But I mean, it gets really abstract now, and I, I can definitely see the problems with it, because how much how much hate is necessary for something to be considered hateful? Like, what's, is there like a bar where, you know, when you're looking through these things on 4chan online, when do you go, you might find something that's like, okay, this symbol here, you know, it's, it's causing some red flags. When do you, how do you figure out that that's something that you're going to, you know, talk about more? Like, how do you measure its ubiquity, its popularity? My answer is uh, incredibly biased towards my geographical location because in our study, 
uh, we're using the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal and something called uh, the Hallmarks of Hate written by human rights lawyer named uh, Richard Warman uh, as signifiers of what is and isn't hateful. Um, and our the Ontario um, Human Rights Code uh, specifically mentions uh, certain protected categories. And if something targets those categories specifically, uh, we can specifically say it's hate speech. Uh, so the only uh, times that it's really particularly muddy for us uh, using such a, a sound legal framework is when something represents an ideology that is hateful, but not exclusively so. So we've had movements that are like neo-fascist militia movements. Uh, we, we have to talk about and we have to address their symbols. Uh, the leaders of said movements might often be anti-Semitic, uh, Islamophobic, transphobic, sometimes homophobic. Uh, but when it comes to representing the symbol itself, uh, there's an argument people can make where they say, no, I just like this anti-government stance of it. Or I like authoritarian right-wingism to an extent, but like not the kind that racially uh, divides people, which is, it's a tricky situation to go through, but also usually when we see uh, symbols that represent uh, movements uh, of fascism, it's not too far to connect them. It's usually, it's usually doesn't take long to connect them to explicit hatred. As soon as someone's political opinion invalidates the existence or the rights of others, uh, when it doesn't invalidate everyone, uh, every single person's uh, existence and rights, uh, that is hate speech to me, and that's that's hatred. That's a hate movement. Uh, if the movement seeks to take away rights from certain individuals uh, because of uh, where they were born, their religion, uh, their sexuality, any identifying factor like that, that's hate to me. Mm-hmm. Um. But I guess I would argue that um, I guess <laughs> no. I guess I think this is this is uh, important because I think if this is professional, uh, you say professionally no, and you're doing this work professionally to try and um, figure out online hate, which I agree is a very important issue. How do you go about it if you haven't got these predefined terms? Like, do you do you base it off your intuition? Do you have like well, a- I, we well, I mean, we'd go back to using uh, the legal framework that uh, like in uh, so I'm in Ontario. Uh, hum- Ontario Human Rights Code is quite sound. Uh, and uh, every province has their own individual one, but there's usually some pretty uh, similar underlying, um, like, you know, blatant, uh, just do not discriminate. You cannot discriminate against X, Y, Z. And if you do discriminate against X, Y, Z in your public speech, if you publish a newspaper uh, or you make uh, mass videos and you share these kinds of things uh, in public spaces that particularly target people of these demographics, uh, that is hate speech. And and that's hate. So I say prof- pro- saying professionally was, uh, a loose way of saying like we don't have to write it down because it's in our law is sort of what i should have said yeah no no, that's fair enough and um oh, it's a great question for like especially people in the united states where uh the things can be a little muddier uh so it's easy for me to to take that for granted in canada yeah and i think it's easy for everyone to take granted wherever they are because what's interesting is that each country does have their own sort of definition and even england has their own sort of way of preventing like um terrorism and you know they have they have like measurements and extremes to do that but i imagine they differ from canada's right they are we're we're i i usually say we're behind in a lot of ways but we because we're a little behind with uh catching up to uh countering uh radicalization uh and violent extremism uh that we get to learn from others mistakes and i would say the uk is ahead because uh for a few reasons like one a lot of young men in particular from the uk were known uh, to join isis like that was a, a thing that the uk really had to reconcile with at least it was getting reported in the media like people were found that way uh, and the other is like you really do have uh you you, you have neo-nazis too and you, you have organizations over there that have been dealing with it too and uh, i think you uh, the united kingdom adopted a definitions of terror groups uh, that were domestic uh, for groups that we've since adopted in Canada and into our uh, into our law as designated terrorist entities. Um, some countries like uh, the United States still haven't caught up uh, in terms of like addressing domestic uh, terrorism as such instead of addressing the crimes uh, as sort of a separate entity. I don't know exactly what the best solution is uh, because a lot of law enforcement uh, framework to deal with terrorism is outdated and it's based it's built out of a, a period of post 9-11 angst where a lot of it seems like a lot of Islamophobia got to slide by when people were addressing uh, ter- issues of terrorism. 
So you'll often kind of see people that were from the law that are from the law enforcement field uh, have very different takes on it than people like me who are uh, just getting into it from a nonprofit background or an activist background or an academic background. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this this is the thing. Like my criticism of a lot of um like England's counterterrorism like programs are that it does seem kind of like they've reacted um against sort of people's religious views where you know if they can go and you know do stuff in iraq and you know people are pissed off about it like even expressing that kind of view against you know england or just saying oh i don't agree with that you know if you took that to more of an extreme obviously i'm not saying you know go and do jihad and bomb people but if you have any kind of view that's like you know i'm critical of the west that can be misperceived as you you know being someone that's on the road to extremism so i think it's like it's very important to get our definitions of what hate is you know when sometimes I'm not, I'm not justifying those views, but I think I can understand and see where someone's coming from, you know, when they are critical of an institution or a government and that being misconstrued by governments as being not in their interests, right? Criticism of governments and criticisms of regimes is, uh, should always be accepted. It's not necessarily hateful and it should not be addressed as necessarily hateful. It's, it's when people uh, extend that hate towards people who are from those places or who just happen to live in them, yeah, uh, that's when it becomes prob- that. That's when it's hateful. In Canada, the COVID conspiracy movement, which uh, Adrian and I talked about a little bit earlier, uh, really kind of exploded um, into a sort of international media phenomenon for a little bit between February and March of this year, when a large convoy uh, of anti-government and anti-COVID-19 uh, mandate. Uh, protesters formed a convoy that grew larger as it went. Well, I guess two, in theory, it was several convoys, but one from the West coast of Canada, one from the East coast of Canada, uh, who were the largest uh, that picked up steam as they went and met uh, in our capital, Ottawa, and uh, shut down effectively several blocks of Ottawa's downtown core by occupying it with large vehicles and just uh, putting the entire, uh, putting the entirety of the downtown core into gridlock. Uh, so it was a mixture of, it, there, there was a lot going on. Uh, for one thing, it got a lot of media attention. Um, so we had uh, people addressing it from all over the world. Uh, one thing that was interesting is like the group that organized this sort of thing has been doing these kinds of things since 2019, since before COVID-19. And it's always been a, a far-right political movement. Uh, that kind of got lost along the way. Uh, maybe it was with Joe Rogan or Tucker Carlson or someone else, uh, Elon Musk talking about it publicly. Um, but a lot of the messaging got uh, really messed up, and sometimes even people that were there uh, had mixed reasons about why they were there. Uh, but whatever it was, it was a solid eight or nine days of endless honking before a complicated uh, series of events led to a city injunction that I do not understand because I'm not uh, up to par in municipal law. Finally got the uh, honking to settle down, but it was incredibly irritating. People were uh, out of work for weeks. Uh, there was a lot of harassment that happened in Ottawa. They had to set up a separate hate uh, hate crimes and hate speech tip line. I have no idea how successful they were in, in, in prosecuting uh, at that. I just know there was a lot of calls for it. Uh, there was uh, ambulances couldn't get by because the streets were in gridlock. Uh, there were ambulances that would have rocks pelted at them. There was uh, a shelter for unhoused people that uh, had an incident of assault and racial slurs getting at them. There was a lot of people that reported not being able to walk safely at night without getting cat called. Uh, people were getting drunk and rowdy. It was a mixture of uh, that with a very good uh, presentable appearance during the day of like families coming down uh, that were, you know, just kind of vaguely knew what the movement was, or maybe they knew a lot, uh, coming down with their kids, uh, making it seem like a party, having a good time, loud music. Uh, there were two hot tubs at one point, and someone towed like a portable sauna on the back of a truck. Um, it was wild. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's crazy. All that can happen from just all these trucks just, yeah, getting into small spots. and, and... It really showed, uh, and I overlooked it, how easy it is if you have uh, the equipment for a small number of people, uh, most accurately a few thousand at most times. Like, there were probably more than 5,000 people at certain times. Uh, but how much damage you can really do if you just uh, plan your equipment really well and you can shut down a city when there's no roads. Uh, you have a lot of power. There's a lot of bargaining there. Uh, what was fortunate is instead of using that bargaining power, um, they had a memorandum of understanding, which was a very uh, complicated legalese document that involved the governor general and Canada senators uh, signing away to get rid of our prime minister. So the actual plan and execution of the demands was uh, 
not as effective as the actual occupation as taking the city hostage was. <laughs> right. I mean, so yeah, you mentioned that they, they had like confused reasons and, you know, the, what, what, they wanted to get rid of Trudeau. Is that the kind of, is that the, the mission statement of, of all this? People do, yes. Uh, it, was, it was in the, um, it, it was part of their uh, document, part of their memorandum to get rid of Trudeau uh, specifically. Why? Um, it's a complicated series of reasons. Trudeau represents uh, a lot of different things to a lot of people, but to the far right, he's really been vilified in the last couple of years uh, for a series of conspiracy theories um, and general grievances kind of mixed together. So there's a lot of good reasons to not like anyone in official office, I would say, and I don't think that criticism of Trudeau should always be roped in uh, to any particular ideology or any particular political movement. Uh, that's just that he's our prime minister. Uh, but there's also a uh, staunch, like, anti-liberal, anti-moderate uh, resentments uh, that Canada's far right's been peddling a long time. Uh, Trudeau was also our prime minister the last time they did this uh, sort of convoy to any sort of meaningful media success in 2019. Uh, he represents things they don't want. A lot of them do want fascism. Uh, he represents uh, diversity to a lot of people because of... Uh, his association with just generally increasing the amount of refugees we took in from Syria at a certain amount of points. So there's a lot of uh, xenophobia uh, that is makes him the target. There's certainly a lot of racism. Uh, he's also the target of a lot of conspiracy theories that he is a pedophile. Uh, he's the target of a lot of conspiracy theories that he is uh, involved in. Well, he is involved with the World Economic Forum uh, with Klaus Schwab, but uh, the World, Econo World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab is also involved in a myriad, a whole network of uh, convoluted conspiracy theories, uh, and Trudeau is often painted at the center in Canadian politics. So, yeah, I would say it's a whole complicated reason. Very big mix of general, very mix, a good mix of real grievances with the government and people just pointing all of their grievances towards the prime minister because he is the figurehead for the entirety of the federal government uh, and a complicated uh, swash of conspiracy theories that has been going on since before COVID. It sounds like misguided skepticism. Like the skepticism is warranted yeah. because, you know, we, we all kind of think that about these people and, and they've done some things that, you know, like you said, are worthy of condemnation. But then it's just like, why, why does it then descend into conspiracy when I guess some of the obvious scandals that some of these politicians have had, like I know Trudeau did brownface that time, like that's, you know, definitely yes. happened. Like why, why does it need to go into things that sound bizarre like i often think that some like people with flat earth theory and this I, I love to discuss this actually but i feel like it sounds like no you've got a skepticism about what people are telling you you know you've got a skepticism about the news and media and stuff and i i'm with you you know i, I don't i don't trust that either um but why does it but it seems like the reason that you want to believe in something like the world is flat is because it gives you this edge it gives you this knowledge of something that you know and other people don't and you'd rather take your skepticism and get some form of identity of you being special out of it rather than just sharing this general skepticism and having reasonable doubts about it? No, you, you touched on something that I hadn't brought up that is another uh, very good thing that conspiracy, or not very, uh, not a very good thing, sorry, a good point uh, of an effective thing that conspiracy theories offer to people to believe them, that special status, uh, which there was a more mature way to describe it uh, that wasn't on the tip of my tongue, yeah. but... Uh, the uh, the ability to you see something that others don't uh, that is self fulfilling it's self satisfying and things that are self fulfilling and self satisfying narratives like that are especially are especially effective when people are shut out from a lot of society from COVID nineteen from vaccine skepticism from uh, people are out of jobs people uh, couldn't see their families, especially before vaccinations, because, uh, you know, the government told you one day to stay home and not see your family. And they had good reasons to, but at the same time, it's hard not to take it personally when something upends your whole life. And rather than seeing evidence of COVID-19 making it so, people don't really know a lot of people that have COVID-19. All they see is evidence of people telling them that COVID-19 exists. Uh, it's easy to see why people would be skeptical and lash out and get into that rabbit hole in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I think because, yeah, it starts off as skepticism, right? Like you start going and wait a minute, like, I don't believe, I don't believe this shit. And then I feel like we've all, everybody almost has that kind of experience with something, uh, whether it's religion or media or politics, often politics that, you know, what I'm being told isn't like, right. 
and I, it, it feels like it latches on like these these um i guess these these groups that sort of you know uh prime youth radicalization latch onto that skepticism and then sort of uh pervert it into sort of like we know but then what makes someone not doubt them because no matter what boris johnson says and how much how much i might consider that to be bullshit someone telling me that the earth is flat is just you know that's preposterous i i couldn't i could never believe that as a substitute so why 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 does it seem like a more convincing substitute for some of these people sometimes it's better messaging uh sometimes it's messaging that appeals better to people's feelings and sometimes that uh actually you know it does that bubble does burst and people's promises don't come true often enough that uh people do leave and they move on to something else you see that a lot with uh in the united states uh a lot of predictions about donald trump uh for a lot of donald trump fans have not come true uh he did not rewin the election and get reinstated as president yet. So some people do lose faith uh, over time. Unfortunately, as they lose faith, there's always going to be other answers in conspiratorial narratives because the people pushing them have investment in that. They get power in being in conspiracy movements, or sometimes they get money uh, off of various methods in conspiracy movements. So they're always going to try to have answers for when that bubble bursts. Right. Yeah. That 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 makes sense. Um. And do you find that you know with flat Earth theorists are they are they problematic in the same ways that, you know, these anti-maskers have, you know, turned out to have these views and, you know, maybe far-right groups are, are, fl are flat earthers? Are they just wrong? There's or anti-Semitic narratives uh, in conspiracies adjacent to flat earth. Uh, so I'd definitely say being super involved in flat earth uh, communities, that the, it's a bit, they're not a monolith. So I don't know well enough to know uh, which flat earth groups uh, are more adjacent than others. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, a lot of really powerful anti-Semitic narratives that go hand in hand with that. Uh, as soon as people start asking the questions of, well, who exactly is controlling the flat earth uh, if it's not so-and-so, and if uh, there's not enough evidence that, uh, oh, Boris Johnson is not part of a globalist uh, wealth cabal secretly keeping the earth flat, it seems like maybe he's in the dark too. Well, then who is really controlling it? Those narratives always end up uh, in a place that's pretty necessarily hateful. Uh, sometimes, especially during COVID-19, that ended up in a place of... Uh, anti-Asian racism, um, where people would conflate the Chinese government uh, and things that they have and have not done, a lot of things they have not done uh, with Chinese people in general, and it was an excuse to espouse a lot of anti-Asian Asian racism. Likewise, any conspiratorial narrative will eventually become anti-Semitic because Jews are always painted classically uh, in uh, conspiracy narratives as plotting and malicious and behind everything, and that just goes back to uh, Pretty much <laughs> a long time. Back to most of modern conspiracy theories that are still uh, rehashed right now, uh, even before the protocols of the elders of Zion. Yeah, and it's interesting that that keeps repeating. Like we haven't learned that that's a a common pattern enough for that to stop being an inevitability or a scapegoat, right? Like why? How is it still like now? It's it's gone from you know I don't even mention all the examples. There's so many of them, but it's even now to the flat earth stuff it's now it's got anti-semitism involved in that too like why why does it keep, why do you feel like it defaults often in these groups to anti-semitism there's a large foundation on anti-semitism uh built for that uh the protocols the other design which i mentioned earlier has been really enduring um nazi germany's legacy is incredibly enduring uh these things keep getting rehashed and reused because they work uh they're effective mm -hmm. And also because uh, historically Jewish people have had to deal with this, they keep diversifying and going to new places. So anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy narratives that were effective during the pogroms when uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion were written are effective in the United Kingdom and Canada now because the United Kingdom and Canada have a lot of Jewish people. Uh, you need to actually uh, have a scapegoat that you can see for people to act upon that hatred. Uh, and sometimes uh, painting it as a mythological creature or something that's fictional, uh, like... Uh, aliens or lizard people or anything like that that's in charge of the world uh, isn't as effective as people because they can't actually see that. Um, likewise, uh, another anti-Semitic narrative that uh, is more modern and uh, say revised is uh, uh, when people are, uh, get into transphobic conspiracies, it's often uh, treated as though uh, transgender people are the product of a Jewish plot. Um, sometimes it's the product of a Freemason plot or an Illuminati plot uh, but whenever those types of ifs exist, and Jews are always one of those targets. Yeah. 
do they learn tricks from each other? Like these groups, do they sort of learn techniques and how to like radicalize each other and then implement it into their strategies? And do you see that happening? Yeah, uh, big strategies and little strategies. Uh, and sometimes they, you know, they learn it from the mainstream too. Uh, a lot of great replacement revision, um, great replacement theory is a, uh, it's a racist conspiracy theory that was, was coined in 2011, but it was built on a bunch of pre-existing conspiratorial narratives, uh, where there's an intentional push, um, when it was coined, it was specifically by Jewish people, uh, to create interracial relationships and to create interracial populations in an effort to like generation, generationally, uh, get rid of a quote unquote white or quote unquote Aryan people. Uh, so that uh, like that narrative uh, has been revised a lot and kind of whitewashed by people like Tucker Carlson or Matt Gates uh, in the United States in ways that then goes back to uh, extremists, uh, specifically white supremacists, uh, taking their talking points on it and taking their revisions of the narratives because they find them to be more effective than the initial one. They seem more palatable and they seem more realistic uh, than the initial iteration of the great cons- uh, of the great replacement conspiracy theory. Uh, likewise, like messaging, branding, uh, little things like that. Even sometimes, like tricks for like filming, uh, you'll see sometimes get taken from one person to another. If you hear one person talk about it too much, you'll realize they present facts in the same way. They use the same mannerisms. Uh, Alex Jones famously pretends to shuffle paper on the microphone, so you can hear he's like got data. I think he took that from Rush Limbaugh, who did that first. Wow. Like, there's a certain case where like, yeah, people learn that uh, from others, and it's it's gonna it's the same in messaging. It's the same in mannerisms. Uh, if it works and you're good at doing it, uh, if you're if you know what's best, you learn from the best, uh, and you you take what works and you throw away what doesn't. Yeah, and so these are like little tricks to add towards one's like credulity and like how persuasive they are of the facts. And it's I yeah, know. I work in internet memes specifically, so everything is rehashed and remixed. Uh, so internet memes that are not effective get tossed to the curb immediately uh, in the realm of popular opinion on internet uh, on the internet, like. Uh, if uh, if if a racist meme doesn't hit on 4chan, we'll see it once. Uh, if it's good prop and uh, it hits on a lot and it appeals to what people think and it's easily accessible, uh, people will not only spread it and use it more, but they'll also remix it and rehash it and take what's effective about that and put it into a different format, um, different format or a different message. If the aesthetics are effective, they'll take the aesthetics and put a different character in. If the character is what people associate with, uh, like Pepe the Frog, for example, was like spread really quickly among those spaces because it was incredibly effective. Then they rehash and remix Pepe the Frog everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I see. And um, I guess what the thing that's on my mind a lot is I we we hear a lot about far right extremism. Do you encounter a lot of far left extremism or you know anything on that other side of the scale? In right now, uh, the vast majority of problems with uh, political extremism uh, are on the far right. Uh, I also should say, uh, in saying that, uh, personal bias because I'm more left-wing than I am right-wing, yeah. uh, but also the data backs it up. Uh, so I, I'm happy to wear that bias on my sleeve because that really is uh, where it is. Uh, only two weeks ago, uh, a mass murderer killed 10 people in a black neighborhood in Buffalo, uh, specifically citing great replacement theory, uh, calling himself a neo-Nazi and a white supremacist in his 180-page uh, plagiarized manifesto. We don't see incidents like that happen uh, in movements outside of the far right in Canada and the United States to uh, such an extent that warrants the same resources being put towards them. Uh, That's interesting. I think what interests me about that is, yes, definitely if people are dying, this is where, you know, radicalization has now gotten to a very urgent point. Like you can't deny the real harms of that when innocent people are dying or people not affiliated with that belief are being killed because this person believes something in any kind of sort of, you know, excuse, killing any sort of innocent people is not on. And it's very scary that these sort of beliefs have the potentiality to do that. What you also said was that people on the far, yeah, people on the extreme left, they require a different approach because the type of hate is going to be very different if it is to be called hate at all. But you also mentioned that, you know, transphobia, um, anti-Semitism, these things also exist on the extreme left. And yes, I will admit as well that, you know, I don't hear of any of, you know, the extreme left killing anybody it's always like in the in the eyes of the right just fucking sjw's and all that so you know no one's died yet but like if you you, i would expect you know people on the left to not have those views you know like i mean i know that it happens obviously but you know if you're extremely left and you're i imagine to be extremely egalitarian and having those sort of views how is it so that you know extreme left hate would also embody that because i'd expect that from the right 
right? It doesn't off it doesn't as much because the left is better at uh, moderating itself and it's better at, at uh, picking up those sort of things because half of being half of leftism is societal progress and the other half is uh, the economic and government models. But you can be a big fan uh, of leftist systems of government, uh, but also have personal biases against certain people and be against societal uh, progress that most of the left uh, appreciates. Yeah. So you can still be in favor of large governments uh, and uh, socialization and breaking up large companies uh, and uh, socialized healthcare and welfare and things like that. But you can be, uh, A, a dick. Uh, you can just be a dick. Uh, and B, you can also be against societal uh, progress like marriage equality, uh, any healthcare that affirms trans people. You can be against immigration from certain countries or certain backgrounds based on people you don't like. Uh, it's not necessarily a like people are more complicated than just being on a left right line. Yeah. I think the political compass is better than the political line at representing people's beliefs. But even then, I think people are really much more individualistic than we give them credit for. Uh, and it's possible to have uh, people are complicated and have internal contradictions all the time. Mm. Yeah, I think this is why I have a lot of problem sort of talking about the left right sort of dichotomy because I, I guess I've started to start seeing it as a bit of a it's like you say much more complicated than it seems and it's hard for me to even put myself and say I'm left or I'm right or and I think I, in the same way it's difficult for me to put other people in that in that box too and say well you know they are like because I, I struggle to even know what far right or far left is if I don't see what you know is associated with that when people mean far right they mean these kinds of people but it's like if people are bigoted and they're transphobic anti-semitic as far as i'm concerned that's the same thing and like to say that you know there's people on the left who are transphobic and people on the on the far right who are transphobic for me that's it seems kind of like to place them on the political scale becomes almost redundant because what becomes the thing that matters is the fact that they're bigoted right so i guess what what makes the far right on the right and such a problem if you're going to have bigoted people all around the political compass i guess well, it makes the far right problem, uh, the far right a problem. And that's an excellent question uh, is uh, I would reiterate before, like they act on it more mm -hmm. uh, and it's embodied in, I would add to it's embodied in the culture of far right movements. Uh, also, there's no equivalent of a hateful, there's no equivalent of a hateful movement to, to any sort of neo-Nazi movement on the far left. Right. Uh, there are individuals that are, are, are racist, uh, xenophobic, uh, transphobic, homophobic on the left. Uh, there's not a cohesive movement uh, of ethno-nationalism on the far left. Like there is not a white nationalism on the far left. There's not one of the any different types of, of extreme neo-Nazism. Uh, there isn't a siege culture equivalent on the far left, which is a, an accelerationist neo-Nazi um, movements, uh, sort of not, not movements so much as a collection of movements and culture. Um, there, the far right just has uh, cohesive movements that are specifically rooted and based in hate. The left doesn't really have that. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to. Um, like I don't see nobody like in killing people in the name of Stalin anymore. Anyway, like I don't, not Stalin, sorry, but like Marxists or Leninists. I don't. I don't know. Like the most you'll get is like a protest outside like city center, but I don't know. No one's dying. Um, yeah, the most uh, like some. There's really old ways of like dealing with of law enforcement dealing with like terror threats that will like uh, address like anarchist uh, events. Um, like there was a leftist group that burned down um, uh, a pro-life uh, clinic or, or some sort in the States. Uh, I might be getting the details wrong. My apologies if I am. Um, the important thing is like it was property damage. Um, it was nobody died. They did not intentionally kill anyone. Uh, you can't say the same about the absolute worst of the far right. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. Um, and even then, it's based in political action. It's not based in hate specifically. There can be anti-government far right and far left sentiments uh, that can take root in, in terrorism uh, and committing violence, uh, but there isn't any cohesive movements uh, that's like anti-government um, and specifically anti-hate that's as much of a worry right now as ones that are specifically rooted in hate. That being said, anti-government rhetoric uh, on the far right often does intersect with these hate movements. And actually, I shouldn't even say it's not cohesive. It is cohesive. It's just more uh more anti-government stuff on the right uh takes form of that kind of thing we had an anti-government group in canada uh 
some members were arrested. Uh, members, it's a, it's a loose network, so some followers, I guess I should say, uh, were arrested uh, with conspiracy to commit murder uh, and are uh, awaiting charges in Alberta. Uh, that sort of th- kind of thing hasn't happened on the left uh, in my adult lifetime. And, and do you think that's... I'm sorry to hark on the point, because I think I just need to clarify uh, that, because I imagine this is just the, the common... Um, I guess, counter-argument towards sort of far-right extremism is like, oh, what about the far left? And I just want to really, like, flesh it out. But, like, is it... Do you think that's the time thing? Do you think, like, maybe, you know, far-right extremism will have its day and then eventually the far-lefters might kick off because they're realising that capitalism is getting so extreme now that it requires some radical action? Or do you feel like that maybe never happens? I understand it's hypothetical thinking now, but I'm just wondering whether you think it's of its time type thing that we see more pushback on the far-right globally. I wondered before. Uh, however, I think the more that the left builds communities of love and mutual respect, uh, which is easy to do when people are invalidating your existence and you have to fight for it. I shouldn't say easy. It's incredibly hard to do. Mm. Uh, but it's done strong when you're fighting for your uh, existence uh, against an imminent threat. If you build those communities and you build them lovingly and uh, for everyone to be accepted in, and everyone to have a place in, uh, you're going to make yourself resistant to getting people uh, on your side to do the wrong thing, uh, to radicalization. And I also, I also think if it's going to become specifically mentioned anti-capitalist attacks, I think a lot of people underestimate how much uh, far-right groups, be they anti-government uh, or certain types of, of neo-Nazi ideologies, uh, really hate capitalism too. And, and do commit attacks in the name of destroying it, uh, and at a rate that well surpasses uh, leftist uh, attacks in the name of anti-capitalism. Well, that's that's really interesting then, because I, I guess in my head, and this shows sort of the the confusing nature of putting everything on a left-right scale. That yeah. you know, people <laughs> on the right, they I thought it was more like you're more like traditional values, or you're more pro-capitalism, or like free markets. But you're telling me that's actually these people on the far right, they they. They don't like that too. So what makes them far right? Like it's... Well, people, if you're uh, extreme authoritarianism uh, is has to be anti-free market eventually. If you want a dictator to control everything and you want the classes of people to be divided based on predetermined circumstances, uh, there's only a limited room amount of room for capitalism. So like Nazi Germany uh, did a mixture of uh, dictator authoritarianism and capitalism in a way that... Uh, profited a lot of people in capital, uh, but they did it in a way where uh, they would literally imprison, kidnap, and uh, kill any genocide uh, people that were leaders, uh, that, that were business owners uh, who were of groups that they wanted to target and then replace them with people that they just kind of thought would do an okay job or they owed a favor to or just like so-and-so's family member. And that's how they had their capitalism go. They had their capitalism boom on uh, thievery, murder, and uh, above all, else, slave labor, because uh, they they use slave labor in the concentration camps. So it it doesn't necessarily need to be anti-capitalist to an extent, unless you look at the point where, uh, unless you are want to argue the point where, well, if you're if you really are pro-free market and everything, uh, you need to give everyone a chance, and that type of authoritarianism doesn't give everyone a chance. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, it's I, I I hesitate to to. I should hesitate more to speak anything on this subject uh, because I don't want to elicit any type of a apology for any type of uh, ideology that um, is in this just because it has contradictions that's in this sphere. Uh, just addressing every modern type of, every neo-fascist ideology possible and both and the vanilla classic brands of fascism are full of contradictions and people that are giant hypocrites. So. People can benefit from capitalism and rely on it, but also uh, hate the idea of it because they can blame capitalism for uh, capitalism being the reason that uh, work is gone to people of uh, races that they do not approve of. They can blame capitalism for the reason that uh, Jews are still accepted in society because they believe Jews run the banks and therefore capitalism has a place for Jews uh, that uh, a pure uh, anti-capitalist state would not allow. Uh, They blame uh, if they see white, if there's a narrative of white people losing their jobs uh, overseas, um, uh, like uh, as long as you know, if the work can be cheapened, it can be globalized. Uh, that's also a product of capitalism that they can rally against. So they don't necessarily they pick and choose. 
what they like. And that's going to be the same in any, any type of fascism because it's a terrible ideology filled with uh, mythologized and romanticized uh, ideas that uh, when you look into them, contradict each other in, in, pretty, uh, in pretty silly ways. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult conversation to have, I think, about because it seems like the entire conversation we've had, it sort of falls into a lot of abstract thinking, things that are quite intangible, like ideas that are developed over time, like different niche subcultures and the sort of similarities they have. Um, and it's contentious and it's like very ambiguous and it's difficult to put your finger on it. And it feels like even throughout this conversation, I've had to very had to be very careful in making sure that I don't, I say the right things in order to get to the right subject because it's very important. And it feels like you've got to not dance around it, but be very particular because you say one word wrong and you're saying something completely different. Is that like, is there, do you feel that kind of pressure when doing this job and you're researching to sort of be quite exact, be quite correct and even conducting interviews and speaking to people that, that does it feel tricky for you or are you sort of used to it? No, it's still tricky. Uh, this is the trickiest one in a while, partly because you've been asking great questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, and, uh, like, I don't, like, I, 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 there's certain things, uh, I have notes prepared for, uh, if I, there's certain questions that, you know, I can, I can recite talking points, uh, in my head. Um, because I, I, you know, I do things like present to high schoolers at this point, uh, and, and because some things I've written a lot about. So if it's, if it's a subject I, I've, uh, I've reported on before, uh, it's easy to talk about it. But when it comes to, yeah, the abstract, uh, ideas. No, I don't have like answers prepared for this sort of thing. This is absolutely uh, improv, personal, uh, a little stressed. Uh, so I'll uh, I'll have to yeah I'll have to let you know. I'll have to, I'll have to give it a <laughs> listen after and just like send you an urgent DM like oh crap I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, nah, it's fine. I mean, it it sounds like it's a lot of pressure because I mean it's difficult because you see the very real effects of all these things. And I think they're mo mostly undeniable that, you know, the world seems like it's at war with itself. Like you see loads of different countries um, and like it tips into this sort of, a lot of political parties are tipping in this way where suddenly you're getting a rise of nationalism in so many different places. And, you know, you see in India, um, bit in England, you know, definitely America, Poland, like even places like that. You know, Steve Bannon's influence is, is quite a lot in all these different places too. And it's like, you definitely see it. Everybody kind of feels it. And it's really hard to sort of pinpoint the causes and how you go about it. So the work you're doing is like tremendously important, but it almost feels like without the skepticism, without the, how do we, can we do a double take on the knowledge that we have? Can we look at it through a more objective lens? We're just going to, it's very easy to get misled and it's very easy to sort of, I don't know, go in the wrong direction because of how vague and murky it is. I feel for Skep you. <laughs> skepticism is good because skepticism helps correct people along the way. It helps correct uh, myself and others and anyone doing uh, Skepticism should be uh, a part of any job and, and second guessing yourself isn't unhealthy. It's, it's how you come to better conclusions. And that was my conversation with Dan Collin on Cozy Combos. Thank you so much. I'll see you again soon. I just don't want to get uh, anything wrong. Anything wronger than I already have uh, on this podcast. Uh, which is, is whatever you didn't like that I said, uh, that was the part I got wrong and I'm sorry for it. And whatever parts you did like, that's what I got right and will stand by. Uh, I'm, I'm telling this just to you, listener, uh, specifically.